0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today we talk with Gilbert Metcalf, John DiBiagio Professor of Citizenship and Public Service at Tufts University. With his co-author, Alan Finkelstein Shapiro, Gibb recently published a working paper on how a carbon tax designed to meet the U.S.'s climate target under the Paris Agreement would affect the U.S. economy. They estimate the effects not just on overall GDP, but also employment, labor force participation, wages, and companies' decisions about investing in clean energy technologies. We discuss their modeling efforts, the surprising results, and the implications for policymakers in today's podcast. Stay with us. Okay, Gib Metcalf from Tufts University, also a university fellow at RFF. Welcome back to Resources Radio.
1: Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here again.
0: So Gib, uh, we've had you on the show before, uh, but it's been a little while. So can you remind our listeners how you got started working on environmental issues?
1: I got started after I graduated from college in the mid-70s. In fact, it was mainly through anti-nuclear organizing in Western Massachusetts, I was part of the Clamshell Alliance occupation of the Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant site in 1977 and spent two weeks in a New Hampshire armory along with a thousand other close friends and neighbors. Uh, That really got me thinking about the issues of demand and, and, and really the importance of economics around demand forecasting and policy development, which... All led me uh, to enrolling in a master's uh, program in, in environmental and resource economics at the University of Massachusetts, and that's really where I got my start.
0: That's great. The Clamshell Alliance, where, where, where does the name come from?
1: Well, the Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant is on the New Hampshire coast, and there are a lot of clam diggers in the area, and, and it was a, a name that resonated with the local group that started it.
0: Great. Very cool. Um, So uh, we're not going to talk more about clams. Sorry to disappoint you listeners. Uh, We are going to instead talk about uh, a really fascinating new working paper that you recently published with Alan Finkelstein Shapiro called the Macroeconomic Effects of a Carbon Tax to Meet the U.S.-Paris Agreement Target. So we're going to dig into that today. We'll, we'll have a link to the working paper in the show notes so people can read along if they'd like as we talk. Um, but can you give us a start by helping us understand how this paper fits in and how it contributes to the you know, pretty substantial body of literature that's out there on the economic effects of carbon pricing?
1: Sure. Well, Alan and I as we looked at this literature, uh, much of this literature is computable general equilibrium modeling or CGE models. And and uh, we were really interested in understanding the employment impacts of carbon pricing. But these models, these big, large uh, uh, scale computer models, generally speaking, are full employment models. So they can model shifts in employment uh, between sectors, but they can't capture overall employment effects And so to do that, we added standard labor market frictions that can lead to unemployment, things like search costs and and the cost of posting vacancies. And this is something that my co-author, Alan Finkelstein Shapiro, had studied in great, great detail. So he's, He's a real expert in that area, so it was a great match to write this paper with him. Now, we also wanted to capture the dynamics of firm entry and exit as well as policy-induced technology uh, adoption because we felt like these were going to be critical uh, features in the model and in fact it turns out that they make the difference between uh, carbon pricing leading to uh, uh, lower GDP growth, uh, gross domestic product growth uh, versus pricing having a zero or indeed a modestly positive impact on GDP growth. And so this sort of provides the theoretical underpinnings for results that I found in another paper, an empirical paper I wrote with my colleague, Jim Stock uh, from Harvard, where we where we looked at uh, uh, carbon taxes in European countries and found absolutely zero negative impact on employment or GDP growth. So so my paper with Alan really helps to understand what's going on in the data
0: that's great. And we're going to kind of break down each component uh of that analysis in the next couple of minutes so people can really dig into uh both the top line findings on GDP but also these, you know, specific issues related to labor markets and and businesses. Uh, but before we do that, I'd like to ask you about um just one specific uh issue in the title. So the title refers to the US Paris Agreement target and I imagine uh Depending on when the paper was written, uh, you might imagine one target or another target. So can you just uh, help us uh, understand what is the level of uh, emissions reductions that you're estimating here or that you're modeling out? And then what is the level of carbon tax that the model uh, finds is needed to achieve that target?
1: Okay, well, let's talk about the target first. Um, the Biden administration, in their in their uh, recent... Um, commitment under the Paris Agreement, the 2015 agreement to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions globally, they committed to reducing U.S. emissions by 50 to 52 percent relative to 2005 by the end of this decade, by 2030. Now, given progress that we've made in reducing our emissions since 2005, along with Energy Information Administration projections of emissions under a business-as-usual scenario for the rest of this decade, this translates into a need to cut emissions by 35% by the end of the decade. And so that's the target that we're looking at. What do we need to do to cut emissions by 35%? Now, what's the tax rate that we need to do that? Our model is really not constructed in a way that, that allows us to, to, to spit out a, a tax rate in dollars per tonne. But a way to answer your question is to look at the carbon tax revenue collected relative to GDP, which our model does report. And uh, if you look at a 2016 U.S. Treasury analysis that was done at the end of the Obama administration, they found that a carbon tax in the $50 to $70 range would collect gross revenue uh, of 1.1 to 1.2 percent of GDP, so a little over 1 percent. We find that the tax revenue to GDP ratio would be only a, roughly a fifth of that, about 0.2 percent, much much lower. So that suggests we're going to need a much lower carbon tax than the 50 to 70 dollar rate that the Treasury uh, study uh, uh, suggested. And we sort of we we sort of uh, uh, bench tested that that estimate by sort of tweaking our model, and we find if we If we turn off the ability for firms to enter and and the technology adoption channels that we include in our paper, then in fact, we find that the the revenue to GDP ratio jumps to about 1.4%, which is much, much closer to the Treasury estimate. So the bottom line is, is that we think, based on our modeling, is that much lower tax rates will be needed. To hit the Paris Agreement target, than models suggest that don't allow for firm entry and technology adoption.
0: Great, and so yeah, so those those um, dynamics around firm entry and technology adoption are really really important, uh, which is you know one of the things that really stood out to me in this paper, and um, I'm going to ask you about them next, but but first uh, I want to ask about the the top line numbers, the headline numbers that people often look at when. Uh, economic effects of carbon pricing analyses come out. So in terms of macroeconomic outcomes like GDP, uh, as well as employment impacts, what are kind of the top-line findings from from your analysis?
1: So our top-line findings on GDP is that it actually increases very modestly in the baseline model. Uh, However, if we we sort of turn off the firm entry and technology adoption channels, then it actually falls by about a half a percent, a percentage point. Employment is interesting. Uh, our findings are very similar to those from work that Mark Hafstad and Rob Williams from RFF uh, uh, found in a paper that they published in 2018 in the sense that we find that unemployment increases a little bit, uh, but what's interesting in our paper is that what's going on is that in fact, labor force participation is increasing. And part of this just has to do with the reallocation of job creation towards the sector using green technologies. So with an increase of people entering the labor force, then not surprisingly, that can put upward pressure on on unemployment. That's sort of the top line on unemployment. As do halfsted and Williams, we also see big sectoral shifts, with employment falling uh, significantly in the carbon-intensive sectors and rising in green sectors. So it's, it's that sectoral shift that we that we always think about when we think about uh, sort of green jobs and and uh, the transition to a zero-carbon economy.
0: Right, great. And so so now let's get to this these issues of uh, firm entry and technology adoption, which uh, are clearly playing a really big role here. So can you just talk a little bit about you know, how the carbon price affects uh, firm entry or business formation, and in particular, how it affects businesses' decisions about adopting or investing in clean energy technologies and kind of what that all means for these top-line results?
1: Well, if you think about uh, investing in, in, in clean technologies, these are obviously technologies that have a higher upfront cost. Otherwise firms would have been investing in them anyway. So carbon pricing incentivizes firms to make these investments in the higher cost but lower polluting uh, technologies. And as that carbon price increases over time, it increases the share of firms for whom it now becomes profitable to make this investment in clean technology. We don't actually find much of an impact of the of the carbon price itself on overall business formation, but it it, it clearly affects uh, uh, what kind of technology you're going to adopt when you do decide to enter. Um, you have to choose either a polluting or a non-polluting technology, and, and as the price goes up, then uh, then then clearly the greater incentive to choose that 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 cleaner technology. I think sort of intuitively intuitively what's going on is that these channels of, of of business formation and technology adoption simply provide greater flexibility to the economy over time to adjust to higher carbon prices
0: yeah that makes sense and you know to to Get a little more intuition for what's going on here. I think it might be helpful if you could help us understand, you know, what do you mean when you say clean technologies or green technologies? Can you give us an example maybe of like a hypothetical business and um, how it behaves in your model versus how it might behave in a model that does not have this kind of uh, technological adoption built in?
1: So in our model, we have firms that are that are deciding whether or not it's profitable to enter, and part of that calculation includes what decision they're going to make on the kind of machinery to put into their factory, the kind of boilers to put into their factory. Let's think of it that way. So a firm uh, decides to enter and makes a calculation that, given uh, the carbon price and given all the other prices in the economy, that it makes sense to put in, for example, uh, if if it's a, uh, for example, a um, trucking enterprise to put in a fleet of all electric vehicles versus diesel vehicles Uh, going to be higher upfront costs but but assuming that the electricity that they're getting is going to be cleaner than what you get from uh, from from burning diesel uh, then you're going to have you you have a cleaner technology or maybe a clean technology assuming zero carbon electricity Um, so that that'd be the kind of decision that that a firm is, is thinking about making alternatively you could think of a smelter, an aluminum smelter that has access to hydroelectric electricity and therefore puts in an electric smelter as opposed to a coal-fired smelter.
0: Right. Great. And then just one more follow-up question on that, which is, can you help us understand how making those decisions ultimately leads to a higher top-line GDP relative to a world in which the businesses invested in, let's say, the you know the diesel trucks or the fossil fuel uh, powered smelter.
1: Well, it just gives you an additional margin of adjustment to help us hit um, lower emission targets in in the sense that. How do we reduce emissions? Well, we can reduce emissions by either switching to clean technology, which is one of the channels we're allowing. But if we're not allowing for that channel, then the only way to reduce emissions is to reduce demand for the goods and services that I'm producing with that polluting technology. I see. So that means that more of the action is placed on consumers to be choosing products that are low carbon, as opposed to producing products, the same product in a lower carbon way. So with additional channels to operate on, it means you don't need as high a carbon tax rate to hit a target. Thirty five percent reduction. And that means we're putting less drag on the economy.
0: Got it. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. And, um, and I know you look at these effects over time, obviously you're only kind of looking out to 2030, but can you talk us through a little bit about what you find, uh, you know, in, in the early stages of the modeling versus the later stages?
1: Well, basically the steady state results, if you will, what we find, we assume we hit a steady state in, in five years or 20 quarters. And, um, we're finding that as you slowly ramp up the carbon price, and we and we ramp it up uh, over time in the model, that that we sort of move in the direction of slowly beginning to see workers shifting away from working in in, in dirty technologies to clean technologies. More businesses, when they when they are forming, deciding to uh, to form using the clean technology, and so forth. So the um, uh, the steady state results really tell the same story as the as the um, uh, the transitional results. Uh, and I think the interesting thing that comes out of both looking at the transition as well as a steady state is that unemployment really hits the long term higher level uh, that we have higher unemployment and higher labor force participation. Uh, it hits it pretty quickly in the transition. but uh, two things one is it's not a very big increase in unemployment and secondly we find that real wages are are higher across the board for all workers and of course that's that's not surprising because what's driving the increased labor force participation it's the attraction of higher wages and i think that's real that's that's an important point for policymakers since it Obviously, higher wages help when we think about uh, the cost of transitioning from from one sector to another. That sort of that sort of uh, takes some of the sting out of making that change. I think.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. So the next question I wanted to ask you is a question that is you know it's it's applicable for pretty much any uh, study that's trying to to model the future, uh, but it's a question about certainty and how. Uh, the model treats certainty for businesses. So in this analysis, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the assumption is that the carbon tax policy is durable and that businesses can plan around it. They can plan for the future by buying those electric trucks or investing in that clean smelter. Uh, But of course, in our real world current political environment, a predictable carbon price is not something that's really on the table. Um, And even if a carbon price were on the table, there might be considerable uncertainty about how long it sticks around and how it might get changed in the future. So how do you think your findings might change if we started to account for those uncertainties associated with the real world of uh, policymaking?
1: Yeah, that's a really, really important point. And you're absolutely correct that our paper uh, does not allow for any uncertainty. Uh, The policy is put in place and it's going to be there and businesses can depend on it, that it will be there. And it's also certainly the case that in the real world, policy uncertainty is a major issue, as we've just seen over the past four years. Uh, And uh, policy risk is, is huge, both for the business community and for the environment, uh, businesses are much less likely to make these expensive, long-lived capital investments if they risk policy changes that lower or eliminate a price on our carbon pollution. And that means we may not get the kinds of reductions that, that, that we that we need in order to hit the kind of targets that we want to hit for emission reductions. So I think it's, it's really critical to try to build as much policy certainty into whatever policies we end up enacting in Washington. Um, One of the great debates is whether we have greater policy certainty by putting a a, a carbon tax in place that raises revenue and that now you have a constituency for that revenue, or is it better to use the regulatory approach because regulation is kind of sticky, that that once it's in place, it's hard to undo. I'm not an expert in that area, so I just don't know the answer. But but I, uh, it, it's absolutely the case that that um, this uncertainty is a big deal. There's there's also another level. I mean, policy uncertainty is is one. There's also technology uncertainty. You know, we could be thinking about investing in particular types of, oh say, wind turbine technologies that we think are going to pay off over a, we need them to pay off over a 20 year period to recoup our investment perhaps. But if a new technology comes along that's cheaper, uh, more efficient, better, it could end up making my technology obsolete. So that's just a whole nother level of of uncertainty that that kind of um, makes this a very, very complicated problem.
0: Yeah, for sure. And do you think it's fair to say that, you know, if we were to incorporate uncertainty policy uncertainty into the model that we would end up with less rosy outcomes, you know, like a, a worse impacts on GDP? Or is it just kind of not possible to answer that question with the current framework?
1: Well, it, it it really depends on the kind of uncertainty you're thinking about. I wrote a paper, gosh, almost 20 years ago in the Economic Journal with Kevin Hassett. Um, and Kevin and I were looking at, well, we, we were looking at investment tax credits. Uh, this wasn't energy specific, but energy t- uh, investment tax credits in the income tax, federal income tax. And this is a policy that has bounced on and off over the years from its initial inception in the early 60s. And what we found, we used a, um, uh, a stochastic process, a sort of a random walk uh, in continuous time something called geometric Brownian motion to try to analyze this. And what we found is that is that when the policy flips off the investment tax credit, obviously investment uh, uh, goes down, uh, but when it flips back on, you see a big rush to invest because you wanna take advantage of that tax credit when it's there. And it turned out that in the aggregate, you, you, you could find overall investment increasing or decreasing it really just depended on the type of uncertainty and I think the same thing could be true here depending on the kind of policy risk you could see a, a flood of investment occurring during the good times with attractive policies and and uh, that could outweigh the, uh, the the dampening in investment in, in the bad times but it could go the other way so I think that's something that that I, I'm I'm skeptical that a model would give us a definitive answer because I think it would really depend on how you model that kind of uncertainty. Yeah, great.
0: That's really interesting. Um, so, Gib, we've you know touched on I think some of the central points of the the paper, but we're really only scratching the surface. So, uh, I just wanted to kind of have this placeholder question where I could ask you to talk about any other parts of the paper uh, that you think are important or interesting or counterintuitive or anything else you want to highlight.
1: Well, I think one thing I've already highlighted a little bit, but I think it's it's so striking that it really bears just emphasizing, is we were absolutely caught by surprise or, or really, it was very surprising to us to see how dramatically our tax rate looked or the tax rate uh, taxes collections relative to GDP, which is sort of the same thing since we're looking at the same emissions trajectory, how much lower they were in our model than in a model where we turn off these other channels. And I think that's, I find that very encouraging for the kind of policies we're looking at where we're setting an emissions reduction target and hoping to use carbon pricing, whether implicit pricing through regulation or explicit pricing through some sort of pricing mechanism, carbon fee, or cap and trade. I find that incredibly encouraging, and, and I think that's something we need to dig in more. Um, so that, that's one thing that really I think is, I, I just want to really emphasize. And then I guess the second point I'll make is, is perhaps less about the specifics of this paper, but I really enjoyed writing this paper with Alan Finkelstein Shapiro, who's a macro economist who studies macro labor. Uh, markets uh it's my second paper at this intersection having done a paper an empirical paper with Jim Stock uh and I think this intersection of environmental economics and macroeconomics is is a really really important one given the focus of policymakers on well what are the macro impacts of environmental policy so I just I just want to say how uh how cool it is to be doing this work and to be seeing others working at this intersection, including people like Lint Barrage at, at uh, Santa Barbara and Garth Hotel at Georgia, and, and of course, Mark Halfstead and others at RFF. I think it's a, an intersection of two fields that that hasn't been as well populated as, as it could be or should be, perhaps.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point. And I'm Definitely finding, and, you know, I don't do this type of modeling, but in the work that I do, you know, these questions about employment impacts uh, in particular are so prominent uh, from the policymaking community. And oftentimes we just don't have great tools to answer those questions. So it's really fantastic that you and, and Mark and others are, you know, really stepping in to fill that gap.
1: Well, I think we have the tools. What we haven't done is use them as as um uh... Uh, as well as we might. And and uh, so it's great to see people doing that.
0: Yeah, great. Okay, well, uh, Gib Metcalf uh, from Tufts, thanks again for joining us. Let's go now to our last question, which is our top of the stack question. So asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard related to the environment, even if it's sort of just tangentially related to the environment uh, that you think people would enjoy. And I'll start with um, an experience that I had um, over the weekend. I took my first post-pandemic vacation to Chicago, and it was wonderful. And one of the things that I did uh, was to go on an architecture foundation river boat tour, which if you've never done this in Chicago. You know, Chicago's got this great river in the middle of the city and these different branches, and you can take these boat tours that take you all along the river and uh, you learn about the history of Chicago and about the buildings, but you also learn about the reversal of the Chicago River. You learn about the pollution of the Chicago River in the sort of early industrial era, and some some real, real kind of bone chilling stories about the amount of you know animal carcasses and uh, and other waste that was dumped into the river um, early in the city's history. So it's a really fantastic experience, and you learn about architecture and history and environmental issues too. So if you're ever in Chicago and you've got some free time, um, definitely go on a boat tour. Um, but how about you, give What's on the top of your stack?
1: Well, that sounds fascinating. Um, well, on, on my stack, I'm currently reading Robert Caro's biography of Robert Moses called The Power Broker, which is actually an old book published in the 70s. But Robert Moses single-handedly created the New York State Park System, one of the largest and best uh state park systems i think in the country and it really transformed recreational opportunities for new york state residents and particularly for for lower income uh new york city residents who could now get to beaches on long island jones beach uh uh, and other beaches that they couldn't access before so that's sort of that's and, and to see how he did that is quite remarkable but Moses is also responsible for contributing to a car culture in, in the New York metropolitan area that bedevils drivers to this day. You know, for example, he refused to allow public transit options in order to access popular beaches on Long Island that he had built. So I think this is a terrific read. It, it's it's just, it's spellbinding. Caro is a terrific writer, and it's a masterful meditation on the uses and misuses of power for civic and environmental improvement
0: yeah that's it's such a great book and i i remember reading it quite a long time ago and Um, If I remember right, there are quite a few issues about, you know, the siting of infrastructure, which has ended up having, you know, really big impacts on environmental justice issues, right, with um, sort of freeways being placed in certain neighborhoods and displacement of certain communities. I can't remember. Is that covered in detail in the book, too?
1: He's got a chapter called One Mile, which talks about the destruction of a mile-long segment of a highway in in order to build this highway that destroys an entire community of lower and middle income uh new Yorkers in 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 the Bronx area. Uh so yes, and and also uh uh destroying farms out on Long Island. Uh so yes, it's a it's it it is there are huge environmental justice issues that Caro focuses on uh sharply in the book.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Well, um, we'll have links to uh, both the boat tour and the book and, of course, the paper in the show notes for all of you to check them out. And i uh, just say thank you one more time to Gib for coming on the show and um, uh, teaching us about this really interesting new work.
1: Thanks so much, Gib. Well, thanks, Daniel. It's been a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org slash support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, DC. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests, and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.